morning, everybody. Sometimes in the, um, in the flow of details, I forget my stole. Um, why do we wear a stole? Why is it important that I have this on? This symbolizes the yoke of Christ. It symbolizes that when I come up here, I'm not doing like what I want to do. <laughs> when we're doing as priests, when we're uh, serving in the church, uh, it's not our ideas or it's not our agenda. Um, we're here to bear the yoke of Christ and we're sanctified or consecrated uh, to set apart, to forsake other things, other agendas, and to do what God wants us to do. So that's why I just put this on, and that's why it's important that we have it on. Um, if you have your Bible, the sermon is nothing, well, actually, the sermon will relate to that somewhat, but if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible, pull it out. We're going to be right there in John chapter 4, which we uh, just read, uh, the second part of that story of the woman uh, at the well, the Samaritan woman that Jesus, last week we talked about, talked to, and, and he came to her uh, in weakness to meet her in her weakness, and uh, she had an encounter with Jesus in um, John chapter 4, we're in verse 27 to start, um, right after that climactic statement that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Um, if you've ever been to a point of extreme hunger or, or need and exhaustion, and then you have like an incredibly satisfying meal, like I remember in high school in football, we had two-a-days, and we did those in August outside in Ohio, which was not as bad as here, but still hot in the you know 90s. And I remember we would come in, you know, you start at seven o'clock, and by eleven o'clock, um, you're hungry, like you're hungry and hot and depleted. And the moms would come and they'd bring food. And uh, where I'm from, in uh, on the plains in Ohio, um, there's a large Mennonite community, and they would bring something called chicken and noodles. And there's a secret ingredient of chicken and noodles, which is mashed potatoes. <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. But they would make mashed potatoes and you'd get a big old scoop of mashed potatoes at the bottom of the bowl and then you'd get a big old scoop of chicken and noodle, basically chicken and noodle soup, but it wasn't, it was more noodly and less soupy. You get that right on top and I'm talking, you talk about being filled up. I mean, it's like having a, a brick in your, in your belly for the next four hours, but that just like, and then they'd make this homemade Gatorade, or not homemade, you know, they do the powder and the thing, stir it up. We'd drink a gallon of that. You talk about feeling full, and there's like some nostalgia, there's some, there's some satisfaction. It's like, oh, chicken and noodles is incredible. Well, it's actually not like culinarily, it's not an incredible meal. That's not incredible, right? It's like, I'm, they might have put pepper on it, I don't know, but it was just very basic, right? And, but when you think back, you think about how much you needed something to eat. You think about how hungry you were. When you get satisfied, there's something that happens where uh, it becomes this incredible experience, and then you have to share that with people. So I like to tell people, hey, you need, if you ever come to Ohio, you got to go to like an Amish house and get some chicken and noodles, and you'll probably think this is not great. But it was great for me at the time, right? And if you ever have a great experience, whatever that is, right, you have a great experience, you always want to share that. And C.S. Lewis is famous for this quote. Uh, he's famous for a lot of things, but he had this famous quote about delight or uh, this experience of joy being incomplete until it is shared. There's something about, why do we always want to, hey, did you see, hey, did you, here's what he says. I love this quote. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you 
care for it no more than the tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke, to have no one to share it with. Does anyone else share like memes and reels and stuff on social media with their friends? Does anyone do this? It's like, this is hilarious. You've got to laugh at this with me. I can't be laughing alone at home. That's sad. You got to laugh with me and we got to be able to joke about it for weeks, right? And he goes on. But God, when he says, worship me, he's actually saying, fully enjoy me. When you tell others how great he is, you're fully enjoying him. And again, in our reading today, we continue the story of the Samaritan woman. And in her case, she had this, this situation where she came and she's spiritually thirsty and Jesus gives her the water of everlasting life, the spring of water inside. And she finds that, that quenching of her thirst. And the Samaritan woman encounters Jesus for herself. And when she does, it becomes the most important thing in her life. And it's the most natural thing for her then out of the overflow of that encounter to then share that with everyone else. She tells the town about it. Jesus teaches his disciples that this mission that he's on is to testify to the grace of God and that our job is to encounter Jesus Christ and to bear witness to that encounter to a world and watch what God does in the harvest. So today we're going to talk about having an encounter with Jesus Christ Encountering Jesus Christ for yourself. We're going to talk about bearing witness to that, the overflow and, and the essential nature of having to tell about that encounter. And then we're going to talk about exactly how we do that, how we see the harvest. So uh, in your text, look at verse 27. Chapter 4, verse 27. First, this story shows us that we must encounter Jesus Christ. We must encounter Jesus Christ. It says, just then his disciples came back. Just when? Right after Jesus had said, I who uh, am speaking to you am he. Um, I had someone text me last week that Jesus said, if you guys know the meme, uh, I'm him. Like if someone does, some athlete does something crazy, they say, I'm him. That means like, I'm the guy. Like I'm, I'm the guy that you need to be paying attention to. That's like really popular in our culture right now. I'm sorry if I'm speaking at a, lo at a lower age group. But um, that's what he's doing. He's saying, this is, this is the, 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 the ultimate. This is the final uh, a word from God. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is to come. So they come back, they see this, and then they marvel. They're shocked. They're amazed that he's talking to this woman. He's talking with the woman, but no one said, why are you talking to her? What are you looking for from her? No one's questioning Jesus. They're either afraid to or uh, just too awkward. And so the, the scene begins there, like we discovered last week with the disciples coming and seeing this woman who has encountered Jesus. And Jesus was violating a rabbinic Jewish convention. He was engaging in prolonged conversation with a woman, and not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman, someone who's unclean to the Jews, someone who they don't even consider a Jew. Um, this shows us that first, this woman had a personal experience of Jesus and an encounter with Jesus that was life-changing. Her spiritual questions were answered. The one who possesses the keys to the kingdom of, of heaven opened the door for her, and showed her the way in. In their interaction, this woman has had an encounter with Christ where he meets her in her weaknesses as weak. And then look what it says in verse 28. What does she do as a response to that encounter that we talked about last week? It says, so the wa woman left her water jar and she went into town. She ran back into the town. This woman came to the well to draw water, right? That's what she was there for. And she actually, she was so excited about this. She's so overcome with this. She just leaves the water jar. Like she doesn't even finish 
taking the water back home. So everything else, this maybe she was drawing water because she was out. I don't know what she's drawing water for, but she needed it enough to go out there in the heat and get it. And that became less important than the experience and the encounter with Jesus Christ that she just had. In the midst of this encounter, Jesus offers her the living water of the Holy Spirit, which will become a source of fulfillment for her for the rest of her life. So this is the first principle of being a witness for Jesus Christ. You and I are called to testify, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. In order to testify to Jesus, in order to share Jesus, you must first have your own encounter with Jesus. You cannot tell of what you don't know, can you? You can't teach what you don't know. You can't share what you don't have. You can't lead the way to where you haven't gone. You have to have your own. I'm not talking about an individualized faith that's completely divorced from the church. I'm not talking about just you and Jesus at home. Never. I'm, I'm saying like within the context of a, of a community of faith and within the context of the church and within the context of, of the tradition of the church and the scriptures and you are des- designed and destined for a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. You have to be changed by him. And so what does it mean to be encountered, to encounter Jesus? What, what do I mean by that? And what does what this woman experience? Well, I'll tell you what it, what it meant for me. If I had not encountered Jesus, if he had not found me and dragged me out of the filth, out of the pain, um, out of selfishness, out of self-loathing or insecurity that was masquerading as egotistical bravado, if he hadn't rescued me, I would be so lost. I'd be just another fool out there running the race, trying to accumulate as much comfort to numb that pain and to, pr- to prolong death as, as much as possible to control my circumstances, leading ultimately to judgment. That's where I would be. But guess what? He found me. Uh, he took my insecurity. He took my worthlessness. He took my sin. He took my horrible attempts at trying to fulfill myself. And he took them and gave me freedom. He gave me freedom. He gave me peace. I was a slave to those things. Now I'm a son of God. He forgave me of everything I've done wrong. All the ways that I've screwed it up. And then he awoke in me a hunger and a desire for his glory and for his beauty that won't be quenched until I see him one day. He gave me a new love and a new way of life. And so when you encounter Jesus Christ like that, when he takes the mess and he gives you the robe of righteousness, what do you do with that? If it's truly life-altering, what happens? This is the second lesson then of bearing witness to Christ. After an encounter with Christ, it must become the animating principle of your life. It has to be the primary purpose of your life. It's not just a side thing. Like if he saves your life, it now belongs to him and you're now a servant, a a slave of Christ, the Bible says. It would mean that now this thing, this, this relationship with God, this message of grace, this message of freedom is now the most important thing in your life. Look at what it says at the end of verse 28, chapter four, verse 28. It says, she said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
They went out of the town then and were coming to him. So the Samaritan woman was so profoundly impacted by this encounter that she left behind the things she originally came for, and she went back. And what did she go back to do? She went back to tell everybody. She couldn't help but tell everybody. If this is what happens to her, how how do you not speak of it? How do you not tell of it? How does it become just something that's in in the closet or something that's in your bedroom for you to like do before you go to bed and no, no one else knows about it? No, that's not an option. And it's not just the woman who demonstrates that delight expressed, right? She expresses the delight to all those around her. When the disciples return, Jesus himself explicitly teaches this is, the, this is true for him. That it's actually his food to do the will of God. Look, it says when the disciples return uh, from getting food from the town, um, they're urging him to eat food. Look in verse 31. The, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. Because they, they went into town to get food, right? They're coming back out. Rabbi, eat. And he responds with another one of these surprising statements. We've seen this with, the, uh, with Nicodemus. We've seen this with um, um, the Pharisees. Uh, we've seen this throughout the gospel, and we'll see more of it. Um, he gives that, he's like that friend of the party who like says that one off-the-wall thing, and everyone just kind of stops, doesn't know like what to do about it, right? He says, I have food to eat that you don't know of. And they're like, what? Why'd you, why'd you send us into town? What, what are you talking about? Like, or did someone make it back first that we don't, didn't see? What do you mean you have food to eat that we don't know about? And again, he's not speaking literally. He's, he's getting them off guard and uncomfortable enough in the moment for this to be a teaching point, right? And he says, um, yeah, he gets them off, off track enough just to give them um, this lesson. In verse 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So this food that you don't know anything about is actually to do the will of God and to accomplish the work that he sent me to do. So we move out of this metaphor of water, of the springs of everlasting life, right? And we move into the realm of food. So what effect is Christ trying to have with this this metaphor? It's food. What do you do with food? You eat it, right? What happens if you don't get food? You start to starve. Things happen. Your body starts to shut down and eventually you would die. Starvation, right? Food is sustenance. Food is what fuels our body. Food is, in many places and at many times, um, what people have spent their entire days trying to either get for themselves or to earn enough money to pay for. Like, we, we have so much extra money that, like, food is one of the four, 14 or 15 categories of our budget. Like, there, there are times when this is, like, if you don't have this, you can't do anything else, right? Food and water. Like, if you don't eat, or, this, is, this is the source of life. This is how you stay alive. This is what sustains us. And then what do you do when you're hungry? Think about that. This is what we talked about at the beginning. What do you do when you're hungry? Like the hungriest you've ever been. I mean, nothing else matters, does it? Like you could, I, I can wait to do anything until I get some food because I am starving. Like you feel that, that, that hunger in you. Everything else is a lesser priority when you have that hunger for this one thing. And so when you are going to do the will of God as your food, like if you're animating priority in your life is to do the will of God and to share of the goodness of God, then everything else becomes a lesser priority until you're doing that. Paul said this about himself in Philippians 3. He talks about his encounter with God. And starting in verse 4, he says, Whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Do you consider everything else as rubbish as compared to knowing Jesus Christ? Like, is everything that was yours, that you think you've earned, that brings value to your life, is it, does it just loom large in your vision? Or are you seeing Christ? Are you seeing what he's done for you? Have you encountered him to such an extent that all of that pales in comparison to him? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's not that those things don't matter. It's not that those things aren't gifts of God. It's not that he doesn't speak through them. He does and they are. It's that in light of Christ, they pale in comparison. He is ultimate. Everything else is rubbish compared to, in verse 10, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. Like the Samaritan woman, for you and for me, Jesus becomes my all, together with the Father whom he reveals and the Spirit whom he sends. And so you, when you begin with that, him becoming your all, then how do you not share it? So this is, where, this is where Paul gets to. He had all of that. He gave it all up because he encountered the risen Christ. And so he says to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, 24, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, except if only that I might finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Like all the things that worry me, all the things that consume my time, they are of no value to me if I'm not doing this one thing. That's not just for the special super apostle Christians. That's our call. That's my call. This mission, this call, this purpose to testify to Jesus, to bear witness to how you've encountered him, will become the ordering principle of your life. And you will be able to say, everything in my life now has, in light of that, an in order to. Everything has an in order, in order to. Why do I shop where I shop? In order to bear witness to the gospel. Why do I choose to live where I live? In order to bear witness to the gospel. Why do I try to go to work and do a good job? In order to bear witness to, to the gospel. Not to further my career primarily, not primarily to make a great name for myself, not primarily to have a super awesome house, not primarily to be comfortable. No, to bear witness to the gospel of grace. Your food is now the mission of God. And we get so caught up with the things in front of us. We get so caught up with the things in front of us. This quote from Aristotle, um, he wrote this thousands of years ago. It's like he could have been writing it today. Some people believe that this is the task of household management. Household management being like building your home, right? And they go on thinking that they should maintain their store of money or increase it without limit. Like this is the point of why they even have a household to try to do what they do and build a name for themselves. The reason they are so disposed, however, is that they are preoccupied with living, not with living well. 
And since their appetite for life is unlimited, they also want an unlimited amount of what sustains it. Um, We are so concerned with our natural lives that are right in front of us and all the idols that call for our attention that we forget how to live well and we we forget the thing that's of first importance. So instead of frantically scrambling for more of this world without any sort of greater in-order-to purpose, why not have an in-order-to that aligns with your creator? Why don't we find joy in giving away our life? So, we've come from encountering Christ. Encounter Christ for yourself. He changes you. He transforms you. He becomes the most important thing. This becomes the animating principle of your life. And you now, out of the overflow, have overflow of that, can testify to that gospel to those around you. How do you do that? How do we do that? The last lesson we learn about bearing witness to Jesus is that our faithfulness um, is guaranteed success. And here's what faithfulness looks like. Look at verse 35. Um, Jesus says, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Okay, so this is what Jesus is saying. He begins to tell the disciples that there's this this urgency to the mission. Don't wait. The fields are ready for harvest. Don't wait. Now's the time. First, you don't know what sort of planting and watering has already happened in someone's life. You and I don't know what sort of planting and watering has already happened. Don't think that you need to wait forever in a relationship to cross the bridge and to testify to Jesus. You might just reap what you didn't even sow. And on the other hand, you may never reap what you sow. You might start sowing and watering and you may never see it. But that's not your job. Your job is to be faithful. My job is to be faithful. And this is exemplified, I think, if you've ever taught or worked with kids, children and and teenagers. Um, Sometimes you you don't see the results. Someone else sees the results. Um, When I was 17, if anyone out of my spiritual mentors from childhood saw me, they would have thought that it was all wasted. They would have thought it was all wasted. I mean, it was just off the rails. My parents, I can't imagine what they felt. They're here. They got to see it come to fruition, I think. I remember telling my parents one time I was in trouble. They're like talking to me at the kitchen table and I told them, don't, don't, don't talk to me with, don't bring the Bible out to this. Like, don't bring, give me that Bible garbage. I remember just like, I didn't want to hear that. I just didn't want to hear it. It was in my pride. It was in my pain. I just, I didn't want to hear the Bible. I didn't want to hear I wasn't on the right path. So then one day someone showed up in my life and invited me to actually live like a Christian. Uh, when I was 17, I went to a Bible study through the ministry of Young Life. And um, at the, after the Bible study, a guy named Andy Diamond, he goes by Diamond, uh, Diamond pulled me over to the side afterwards and was like, hey, I want to talk to you real quick. We had had like a kind of a, 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 not a really close relationship, but we knew who each other were. We had caught, talked a lot. And, um, you know, I, having grown up in the church, uh, I like kind of knew what to say. But it was clear that I wasn't living the life. And he said, um, I know what you were doing last weekend. Um, and another guy is not here tonight because he hates you and he knew you were coming. And so you say you're a Christian, so either start living like it or don't come here. I texted him this morning and told him that, he, uh, that I'm sharing that story. And he said, you know, I kind of wish I had said that with more grace. 
But uh, I'm glad it got, it to where, got us to where we are. You know, God, God uses the crooked stick, right? So um, it changed my life. That conversation, I mean, that's, if, I had to, if I had to say, here's the turning point, it changed my life. Here was a guy who was willing to say, because, and here, here's why, because he didn't stop there. Here's what happened. I knew I needed to be there. I said, I need to change my life. What he didn't know is that God had been knocking on the door of my heart daily, every night before going to bed. I knew that I needed to change. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to stop doing all this other stuff I was doing. I knew that I needed to change. He didn't know that there had been 17 years of watering and seeds poured in by others. And so he said, if you're taking this seriously, go read Romans chapter 8 and then come to this party down at Ohio State's campus with me this weekend, and uh, we'll talk about it there. And this was like a, you know, a, a young life party where a bunch of college kids are like grilling burgers and having fun. Police show up, and they're like, they think something's wrong. It's like, no, there's no beer here. We're just hanging out. And they're like, okay. So, but it was a lot of fun, and that was the turning point. And I, I hunted him down. I said, I need to talk about Romans 8 with you. And it, it went, you know, fast forward, I'm a priest. So <laughs> they saw me turn around, and they saw me take Christ seriously, right? Um, they spent time with me, they loved me, they taught me how to follow Jesus, but they didn't realize that they were harvesting fruit that was planted by my parents, that was planted by Kathy George at Cypress Wesleyan Church when she was jumping around in the children's ministry telling me about Jesus and about this great Savior. They didn't realize that they were harvesting fruit from a plant that had been watered faithfully over the years by others. God arranged the harvest and their job was to show up and to be faithful, and they did. And you and I have that job, so don't give up. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Be faithful. Sow the seed. Water the seed. And sometimes you'll get to be a part of the harvest. Look at what happens with the town who comes out to Jesus in verse 39. In verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's word. Right? He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And so he stayed there two days. That would have been awesome. Hang out with Jesus for two full days. And many more believed because of his word. So they said to the woman, it's no longer now because of what you said that we believe, but it's because we've talked to him and we've heard his word and we believe that he is who he says he is, the savior of the world. When we tell people about Jesus, they may come to him. But then it's up to them and to Jesus to figure out the rest, right? We walk with them, but they've got to figure it out in their relationship with Jesus Christ. God has to draw them. So how do we do this? This, this woman, the Samaritan woman, gives us a model that we talk about a lot here and it's tabling. So here's how you can do this in your own life. Here's how we're called to do this in our own life, and here's how, here's how at Resurrection we want to talk about doing this. First, three steps. Three steps to a better life. Number one, table. Like, do you know the person? Sit at the table with them. Eat meals with them. Get to know them. Earn the right to be heard. Show them that you love them. Two, testify. What did this woman do? Did she argue? Did the Samaritan woman argue? Did she have like some deep philosophical or theological conversation? What did she say? I, you've got to hear what just happened to me. You've, you've got to hear who I just met. We do this all the time with all kinds of stuff. Just testify. Tell them what God has done for you. That testimony is the gospel. That is a presentation of what God can do with flesh on it and with a story. And when it's someone they know that they trust who has loved them, that's powerful. So you table and you testify. And then lastly, you invite. So then at some point, you've got to cross the bridge. We've got to cross the bridge and we've got to say, 
hey, I want to invite you to know Jesus for yourself. Notice I didn't say to come to this gathering, come to this event. That can be part of it. But each and every one of us have the authority and the power and the blessing of God to specifically ask people to believe in Jesus Christ for themselves and for us to lead them to that and then to bring them into the church. But that specific ask of saying, will you believe in Jesus Christ? Like, will you, will you forsake these other things that, you've, that we've talked about? You've told me about your family. You've told me about all these other issues. I know I can't solve everything. I'm not, gonna, I'm not pretending I know everything, but will you come to Jesus and let him deal with it with you? Like, will you find your life in him? Make a specific invitation. See, when the woman came and told the people, they trusted her word and that was real faith, but then she invited them, come and see. Come and see this man for yourself. And they came and they saw for themselves and they believed. And so for us, we need to table with people. We need to know what has happened in our own lives. We have to know our own story so that we can table with people with our time and our money and our, and our, our sphere of influence and we can then testify to what it is God actually has done in our lives. And then having done that and built that bridge and earned that right to be heard, we can invite them into a fellowship and relationship with Jesus and into the church. We're not doing that for our own good, but we're doing that for the glory of God. We're doing that because we love them and we're just beggars trying to show other beggars where the food is. So that's our call today, to imitate the Samaritan woman, to go and to testify to how we've encountered Jesus Christ and to what he's done for us. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.